0: message was given at Hope Church of Knoxville for more information about Hope Church please visit our website at hopeknox.com Pope Church. I think I know most all of you guys, but if you don't know me, I'm a, my name's Jeremy. I'm one of the pastors here. Um, if you would, turn with me to Acts 16. We've been going through Acts for a uh, better part of a year now, and uh, we came to Acts 16. We're we'll going over verses 11 through 40. I love there's a, there's a fountain filled with blood. It's one of my, my favorite hymns, too. It's great worshiping to that this morning. While you're turning to the text, let me, let me give you a little bit of backdrop on what Acts 16 is uh, talking about and where we're at in the book of Acts. So uh, in, in the first 12 chapters of Acts, um, you see the church and the center of the church is Jerusalem. So basically, first 12 book of Acts, Jerusalem is kind of the center of the church. It's where everything's going on. It's where everything's kind of pointing back to. You see a shift starting in, in chapter 13. You see Antioch start to be the center of the church. So for basically from chapters 13 on 28, you start seeing Antioch be the center. People are sent from Antioch. Um, you see Paul commissioned from, from Antioch. So you kind of see Acts take a little bit of a shift. Um, it stops looking so much at Jerusalem, and it starts looking towards the outside Gentile world. And you start seeing, basically you get a biography of Paul and Silas, and you start seeing them uh, do their uh, missionary journeys as they go throughout Europe, and uh, they go throughout the Middle East. So with with that kind of backdrop, that's what we're looking at today, and we just finished up chapters 15, and um, one of the things Adam talked about, if you guys remember Acts 15 a few weeks ago, um, before Dr. Willem came last week, in Acts 15 the church met together because there was a group of people that was saying, you know, salvation by grace is fine, it's great, but you need to be circumcised as well, there's something you have to do to earn salvation. And you're going to see in Acts 16 here, you're going to see God take the initiative to save people. You're going to see that all through here. As we read through this, I want you to keep one thing, uh, kind of one thing in the back of your head. um, Because this is what we're going to mainly talk about today. We're going to talk about the power of the gospel and how it speaks to everyone, regardless of race, religion, background. It speaks to everyone. It calls everyone to repent and bow the the knee of Jesus. So this morning, we're going to look at three people this morning. We're going to look at Lydia. We're going to look at a slave girl that's demon-possessed. And the third person we're going to look at is the Philippian jailer. So we're going to look at these three people. And just as we go through, think of how different uh, these three people are as we read through this. Um, So starting in verse 11, let's read this through to verse 40. from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods, who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And after she was baptized and her household as well, she urged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. As we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune-telling. She followed Paul and us, crying out, These men are servants of the Most High God, who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And this she kept doing for many days. Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the Spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out of her that very hour. But when her owners saw that the hope of their gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas, and they dragged him into the marketplace before the rulers. And when they brought them to the magistrates, they said, These men are Jews, and they are disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept a practice. The crowd joined in attacking them. The magistrates tore the garments off of them, gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them into the inner prison, and he fastened their feet to the stocks. Now for the Philippian jailer in twenty-five. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. So they're in prison praying, singing hymns to God. Prisoners were listening to them, and suddenly there was a great earthquake. So that the foundations of the prison were shaken, and immediately all the doors were opened, and everyone's bonds were unfastened. When the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried with a loud voice, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. And the jailer called for lights, and rushed in, and trembled with fear. He fell down before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. They spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds, and he was baptized at once, he and all of his family. Then he brought them into the house and set food before them. And he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. Verse 35. But when it was day, the magistrates sent the police, saying, Let those men go. And the jailer reported these words to Paul, saying, The magistrates have have been sent to let you go. Therefore, come out, go in peace. But Paul said to them, They have beaten us publicly, uncondemned, Men who were Roman citizens and have thrown us into prison. And do they now throw us out secretly? No. Let them come themselves and let them take us out. The police reported these words to the magistrates. And they were afraid when they heard that they were Roman citizens. But they came and they apologized to them. And they took them out and asked them to leave the city. So they went out of the prison and they visited Lydia. Lydia is the lady at the first, uh, first part of the section here. So they went out of the prison and they're visiting Lydia. And when they'd seen the brothers, they encouraged them, and they departed. Let's pray real quick, and we'll, uh, we'll go into this. Father God, we thank you for your word this morning, and Father, I pray as we continue to worship uh, through your word today as we hear it, I pray, Father, that we would take this, we would take these truths, these timeless truths that you've given us in Acts, some themes that we're going to see today that we've seen in Acts several times already that, that Luke is, is trying to hint that we need to get. And Father, I pray that we would just get those truths and Father, we would take them, apply them to our circumstances and Father, that we would ultimately be better disciples and love Jesus more as a result. And Father, we just pray you be with us this morning and Father, we pray that your spirit would bless your word. In Jesus' name, amen. I've always been fascinated by conversion stories to Christianity. Um, I love to read uh, conversion experiences that are totally different from my own. My own was, um, I lost a football a few football scholarships. God um, took my, took my knee, had to have surgery, lost some football scholarships. And a friend of mine, um, shared, several friends of mine actually shared the gospel with me after that. And so here's this guy, here I am in 2002 in Tennessee and the gospels preached to me. And five months later, I see my need for the gospel. Um, There's a guy in church history named St. Augustine. He has a a fascinating uh, conversion experience as well. His mother was a devout Christian. Uh, His father was a pagan. There's there's a problem. Uh, Mother's a devout Christian. His father was a pagan, and um, he was a genius. He ends up going off to school. Uh, He had converted to several different religions before he was 30, and uh, he ended up being what was called a Manichean. He was a philosopher and a teacher. And uh, in the late summer of 386 A.D., He's sitting in a garden in Milan, and he heard a child's voice. He kept hearing a child's voice say this over and over, take it and read it, take it and read it. He picked up what was close to him, and it was Paul's letter to the Romans. So he's got Romans 13, verses 13 and 14 open, and it says, Let us behave decently as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and debauchery, not in dissension and jealousy, Rather, clothe yourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, the part that I left out about Augustine's previous life is he had a concubine. A concubine was just very simply an illicit sexual relationship he had, uh, a girl that traveled with him. He had a concubine with him. So he hears this verse, and God uses this verse to convert him. Uh, Maybe you all have ever, uh, you all, I'm sure, have some amazing grace sometime in your life. Um, That was John Newton. So here's a guy in the 17th century, so we've got me in the 21st, we've got Augustine in the 4th, and here's a British guy in uh, the 17th, uh, sorry, the 18th century, and he said, uh, one night he was wakened by a violent wave that was crashing against, against their boat. Water filled his cabin, he hurried above, he found timbers that had been ripped away from the boat. All of them were in terrible danger as the ship plunged through a furious storm. Men pumped desperately. Clothes and bedding were stuffed into holes, and boards were nailed over them. John joined those who were manning the pumps. So he goes down to try to save the boat. It kind of brings Titanic back to you. He's too exhausted to pump any longer. He, he lashes out. He, he goes. He tries to steer the ship. He can't steer the ship. The storm keeps going. It keeps raging. It's cold. The men are freezing. And he says in his heart he believed that Christianity was true. But it didn't bring him any consolation. He said, I concluded my sins were too great to be forgiven. I waited with fear and impatience to receive my doom. But he soon received the glad news the ship was freed from water. He said, I began to pray to think that Jesus, that I had so often derided. I recollected his death, a death for sins, not his own. But as I remembered for the sake of those who should put their trust in him. So he snatched a, he, he took a moment, he opened his Bible and he started reading. And even though the storm's going on outside, he, he took a few moments to read his, read his Bible and he started praying for guidance. Hungry, cold, he's exhausted. And somehow the men kept the ship afloat. And then one day, the captain said John should be thrown, over. that, that night he said John should be, uh, John Dean should be thrown overboard like Jonah. He was causing the storm because he was praying out to God. So the point is with John, is, is by the end of it, John is a slave trader. He's, he's basically transporting slaves to and from uh, Britain. And uh, so he is uh, a slave trader. Very different from Augustine, a philosopher, a learned man. John Newton was, uh, was a learned man, but he was a slave trader. Different, uh, different social statuses, different time periods. Um, and there's, there's one more I'll share with you that's already, that, that fascinates me. There's a guy I work with. Um, and uh, he was uh, saved about 12 years ago. And he has, he's tattooed up and down. He has tattoos up and down his arms. Fascinating guy. Um, I, I like tattoos on other people, not myself. I think they're interesting to look at. But um, he was tattooed up and down. He was a biker. And God just radically converted him. And now he's working with, uh, with me. He's working with the homeless at CARM. And what is fascinating about this, so we take this man in his 40s, here in Tennessee, take me and my me and 18 years old, different circumstances, you take John Newton in the 18th century on a slave boat, and Augustine in the 4th century, and uh, Augustine's a learned man, a teacher, and it doesn't seem like they have a lot in common, I and mean, they don't in a sense, what's fascinating about it is you think about a dark-skinned man like Augustine was, and then you have... Us as Americans, me and uh, me and Michael, the guy I'm talking about, with the tattoos, and then you've got John Newton, this British guy trading slaves. The point is, is they have, and you'll see this as we look through here. They have everything in common. That's the point of the text. The point of this text is, is the gospel reaches out to all kinds of people. It doesn't just reach white people in Powell and North Knoxville. It reaches. It reaches Spanish people. We were singing in Spanish this morning. I love singing in different languages because it shows the shows how the gospel doesn't focus on one point. It's always going out. We're always going to take the gospel to people, regardless of their background, regardless of where they're at, regardless of where they're at. It calls them to trust in Jesus. It calls everyone to trust in Jesus. And we're going to see what we're going to see today is we're going to see Lydia, the slave girl, and we're gonna, the third person we're going to see is going to be the Philippian jailer. They got different circumstances. They have different um, pasts, but they all end up having an encounter with the gospel. So, the first thing I want to show you guys, and we're going to look at, uh, we're going to start looking at Lydia. We're going to look at each of these people real quick, and I want to make, uh, I want to show you one thing today, and I want to kind of, uh, I want to kind of uh, exposit on that afterwards. The gospel removes barriers. So the gospel removes barriers. So Philippi is this cosmopolitan city. Think of it like a, just think of it like a Chicago. It's between ports. It kind of connects the east to the west. So Philippi, uh, Philippi is this cosmopolitan city. There's people there with different backgrounds, and the first difference that you're going to see between Lydia, the slave girl, and the Philippian jailer is they're all racially different. Um, Lydia was from Thyatira. She uh, says she's an immigrant. Um, she was situated in well, what now, she basically she'd be uh, Asian. She was uh, situated in Asia. She was an immigrant into this area. Um, the slave girl, slaves were, they could be transported from place to place, but more often than not in the Roman Empire, they were local to where they were found. So with the slave girl, she is probably going to be Greek. She's going to be Greek, more than likely. And then the jailer. The jailer was like most jailers in the Roman Empire. He was most definitely Roman, so he's Roman. And more than likely, he's a, some type of retired Roman soldier or army veteran. He's like the guy that comes back after a, after a four- or eight-year tour in, in Afghanistan or, or, or a, a war. So you've got three people, three different racial backgrounds. Now, what about their social economic differences? They they've got some social differences as well. Let's let's take a look at Lydia. Go with me to uh, verse fourteen. So they start talking to Lydia. She's from the city of Thyatira. She's a seller of purple goods. So what purple goods are? Is purple goods are um, I'm trying the best way to probably to explain it would be like she's kind of like the fashion designer of the day. Uh, Lydia is well off. She makes good money. She has a good social status totally opposite we're going to see in a minute for the slave girl but she was, she was pretty well off she's probably rich um, compared to most people in her time and Thyatira at this time what's fascinating about that city is it was the center of trade for the Roman Empire for dyes so ladies if you wanted a nice you wanted your dress to a certain color you went to Lydia, Lydia was the girl you went to I would not go to Lydia because I don't care but um, if, you, if you wanted your dress to look a certain color, Lydia is who you go to And the other thing that's interesting about Lydia is uh, it says that uh, in verse 15, look at me in verse 15 real quick. She tells them to come after, she, um, after she's baptized and uh, her household's baptized as well. She wants them to come to her house and stay. So she had a big enough house to fit these people. She had a large enough house to take four missionaries in in addition to everyone that lives in her house. So she's got a big house. She's got a large house. Uh, Lydia seems like she's got it all put together, is basically what, what it looks like from it, and it's what uh, it's what Luke is trying to show us. Now let's take a look at the slave girl. So here's a slave girl, and I, I don't think the slave girl could be any different than Lydia. She comes from the completely opposite end of the spectrum. You can't imagine a person in more bondage than she was in, um, homeless. I don't know if there's a category in America that we have for it. I think the closest category we would have would be human trafficking. You don't own your body and you're giving a service so that your owners can have money. That's, that's about the only way you can modern day describe it. She was in bondage to demons. She was uh, possessed. And she's a bondage to her masters who are making money off of her. She would make money and didn't even get to keep it. And she was able to tell the future because she had a demon in her. So they were taking advantage of her. So she's in a she's in double bondage. So she's in a much different situation than Lydia. She wouldn't have owned anything. She wouldn't have owned herself. Um, you couldn't sink much lower in the Roman Empire than being a female slave. That was about the worst of the worst of the worst. There's just not a lot of recovering from that. She's impoverished. She's unwanted. She's abandoned. She's exploited. And in verse 16, look at me in Verse 16. And verse sixteen, it says that she has a uh, she has a spirit. It says um, Luke says, as we're going to the place of prayer, we're met by the slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune telling. The, the Greek literally just says that she has a spirit of a python, a pythoness. Um, basically, what that is is that is some sort of she was possessed by a demon, but in that culture. Um, They believed it was an oracle of Apollo, I think Greek mythology. And um, the priestess was called a Pythoness. So literally, Luke is telling us that the local people um, thought that uh, she was uh, a Pythoness. She was this oracle that could predict the future. And she claimed to be able to predict it, and she could, it sounds like, due to the demon. And so every bit of the money that she earns, it goes straight to her master. She'd have none of that as a slave. Now let's go to the jailer. I think the jailer is who I identify with the most, and I think it's who we're probably going to identify with the most uh, living here. Um, Jailer's the halfway between the two extremes. Uh, He would have been the middle class guy of his day. The reason why we know that is because he, although he had a good post in a local prison, he's a subordinate official. So probably a middle-aged older guy. He's an official, but he's not high up. So he's just getting by. What's fascinating too, and you'll see this as we we go through the jailer here in a minute, is the other two recognize that there's something different about Paul and Silas. The demon recognizes it with the slave girl, with Lydia after she hears the gospel. She recognizes it. She listens to them. He He doesn't recognize it. He doesn't give them the time of day. He's just doing his job. He's just being an average Joe. So he's got a responsible post, but he's not nearly as rich as Lydia. And his life isn't nearly as big of a mess as the slave girls is. He's a blue-collar guy that's working in a prison system. So he's middle class, like most, most all of us in here are. So there's your, there's your economic differences. There's your social differences. These people are not socially alike. They're not, um, they're not uh, racially alike. They're different. So let's take a look at the spiritual differences, and this is where I want to key in a little bit on. Go with me to verse 14. Let's talk about Lydia again for a minute. In verse 14, it says she was a worshiper of God. That phrase, basically, it just means that it's when Gentiles left their pagan roots. It's when they left their pagan religion and they began to learn about the God of the Bible. She, was, uh, she started taking up Judaism. She started adding religion to her life. Um, Paul and Silas, it says, go by the riverside where there's a place of prayer. Uh, to give you a little backdrop, you had to have ten, 10 men to have a synagogue. They didn't have that, but they found a place of prayer. And so she's a religious woman who is praying, and it's looking like she's seeking the, um, she's seeking the uh, God of the Hebrews. She's seeking the Judaism. So they go to the riverside, and they start praying with her. And so it shows us she's very religious. Um, she's got a lot of money. She's got a good social standing. And it says the Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was being said by Paul. So God God approached her through a direct encounter with the gospel. He approached her mind. She's she's rich. She's got a lot of money. She's got a good social standing. Um, God approached her mind. She uh, she cognitively heard what Paul and uh, Silas were preaching, and God used that to save her. And we'll see that by the end that she's already part of the church by the time we get to verse 40. So... In verse 14 it says one who heard us, which literally means she kept listening. It means she was intent about listening to Paul and Silas' message. God opened her heart to hear it. So she's got an intellectual curiosity about it. She's curious about what Paul and Silas are saying. So let's take a look at the slave girl. So slave girl spiritually, she needed deliverance from her circumstances. She needed Christ. She needed it as well. And the slave girl had a psychological need. She needed deliverance from it. She had an evil spirit which needed to be exercised, but she was possessed. The problem with being possessed is I, I couldn't imagine um, being owned by somebody else, what that would do to you. you. You don't own yourself. Someone else owns everything that you are. She has no identity, no individuality, nothing. Nothing. She's a slave to her masters. She belonged to the spirit which controlled her. She has no control whatsoever. She's in a double bondage. So the girl is in bondage. And one thing that Luke is wanting to show us in this text that will very much apply to modern day is that all three of these people are in bondage. Lydia is in bondage to her good lifestyle. That's why he puts a slave girl in the middle of of the two of, of the jailer and of Lydia. Lydia's in bondage to her lifestyle. The slave girl is in literal bondage. She is in bondage to her situation. She can't get out of her situation. And the jailer, he's just your average working guy. He's in bondage to his job. He's in bondage to what he does, to who he thinks he is. The jailer is the only one of the three, he's delivered from his indifference. He's the only one of the three that does, like I said earlier, he doesn't recognize. That God is working through Paul and Silas. Lydia recognized it, slave girl recognizes it through the through the demon, but he doesn't recognize it. So what does God do? And you see this in my story, you see this in John Newton's story, you see this in Augustine's story. There's a God in his providence uses a special set of circumstances. He uses just means to convert us, is what he did. He used the kids saying, take up and read, and Augustine's Bible just happened to be laid open to that verse, and Augustine just so happened to have a concubine that he was uh, conflicted over. Uh, John Newton was uh, a slave trader that had been going back and forth in his soul about whether he believed in God or not, and God delivers a storm to, uh, delivers a storm and makes him think about it. For me, it's taking away a football scholarship and uh, making me realize that my life is, is worth more than just lifting weights and playing football. God sends an unusual set of circumstances. In verse 26, there's an earthquake. So he's got to go through an earthquake. That's a bad set of circumstances to have, but the end result is great. Look with me in verse 27. It says, the prisoners' bonds were shaken loose. And the jailer was going to commit suicide. Well, that verse is, is very interesting to me. Why the jailer would commit suicide? The jailer would commit suicide because in the Roman Empire, if you were a if you were in charge of uh, of prisoners and they escaped, um, you were basically you had to have their sentence put on you. And so, uh, in a shame, they, they had a shame culture which is uh, basically you don't want to shame yourself, you don't want to shame your family. You want to look good for everyone else around you. This would have highly hindered him from looking good to those around him. And also he would have gotten the sentence that Paul that Paul got as well on Silas. And so he chose to kill himself. But Paul interjects and says, we're here. And the other thing that's fascinating about this story that you see with the jailer is that Paul and Silas, I think he would have expected, I would have expected this, Imagine being in his situation and you've got prisoners, and these prisoners all of a sudden get loose. I would go for my gun or whatever weapon I had immediately because you'd think they would want revenge, right? But what did Paul and Silas do? They didn't want revenge. Paul, and, uh, Paul said, we're here. They didn't leave. They could have left. They could have hurt him. They didn't do it. So he spends time with Paul and Silas, and he's hearing them singing before all this earthquake earthquake takes place. They're singing songs, they're praying, and I think he realizes that he has nothing as concrete as Paul and Silas do, something that can make them sing in such bad circumstances. Um, They were in the the innermost part of the jail where they were, uh, basically, that's the worst part of the jail to be in. They're they're in stocks, so they're, they're slumped over. They're hanging there. They just don't have have much going for them. And yet they're singing songs and they're praying and they're thanking God. And so this guy sees this. This jailer sees this. And he's seeing joy that he's never seen before. And he sees men that don't take revenge on him when they have a chance. And what does he say to Paul in verse 30? He says to Paul and Silas, he says, What must I do to be saved? And what does Paul say? Paul goes back to Jesus. He goes back to the Gospel. He says, Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. It's very simple. Believe in the Lord Jesus, you'll be saved. So, looking at these three stories, and this is the point I want to get to, these three people are in completely different circumstances, racially, socially, spiritually. They're completely different. This is a theme that you see over and over and over as you read through Acts. So, that's, that's the exposition part I want to take you all through. Um, now, I want to get to a very practical question, and I want to get to what Luke's is it? it uh, excuse me, what Luke's intent was when he wrote this. So, why is Luke writing this? Why is he telling? Uh, remember, this is written to Theophilus. Why is he telling them this? Um, it teaches us that the gospel is a power. The gospel is is powerful to save. Um, It's not a function of of race, ethnicity, class, crisis. The gospel is not just for a person in crisis or one without crisis. It's for everyone. God means to take the gospel to everyone. It's not for the rich, the poor, the middle class. It's not just for one exclusively. It's for all. It's not just for the ambitious, unmotivated. There's no such thing as, as a Christian type. You know, looking around, we're all, you know, fairly white, middle-class people. And uh, as you start looking at the gospel in terms of the world, it doesn't look very white. It doesn't look very middle-class. And it always has looked like that. God has always, um, God has always saved people, people you wouldn't expect to be saved. That's what fascinates me about Christianity versus Islam or uh, Buddhism, where it's centered in a location. Christianity is never centered in a location. Its goal is to always go out, always speak to people. The gospel reaches everyone. So that's the first thing I want to show us. Um, we see Jesus do this in John 4. He goes to the woman at the well. The woman at the well is about as low in society as you can go. Um, she's out at midday. Uh, you don't go get your water at midday unless you have something to hide or you're an outcast. She's getting her water at midday. She's the wrong race. She's a Samaritan. The Jews hated the Samaritans. They would walk around Samaria, uh, instead of taking the short way through. And Jesus talks to her at the well, and he confronts her with the gospel. And so even though she's despised for all that, Jesus encounters her, and he engages her with the gospel. He didn't look down on her. He encountered her with it. Second thing I want us to see is that the gospel doesn't allow us to, and this, is, this goes back to John 4, and you'll also see it in Acts. gospel doesn't allow us to look down on people that are different than us. We all have the same need. We all have the same need. We need the gospel. We need Jesus. Uh, Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. You're saved by grace through faith. And the, the key part, it's a gift of God, not by works. If salvation is a gift, you can't look down on anyone because you are no better than anyone else. This is a gift that's been given to you. So when someone is struggling, someone um, maybe different socially than you are, we have no ability to look down on that person. Um, this is something that Paul would have knew well. There was a saying, that the, there was a prayer that the Jewish rabbis, they had a prayer they would pray pretty much every day. Paul, as a Pharisee, would have prayed this prayer. And here's how the prayer goes. Keep in mind the three people that he's going to talk to here in the prayer, the three people he mentions. Here's the prayer. Blessed art thou, O God. For not making me a Gentile, a slave, or a woman. Now, who are the three people that were con- who are the three people that this is talking about here in Philippi? It's talking about a Gentile, it's talking about a woman, and it's talking about a slave. Luke knew this. Luke's traveling with Paul. Luke knows Paul knows this. The first three, the first three people that you see here in Philippi. And we know at least we know at least two of them ended up joining the church. The three types of people that Paul once upon a time would have hated—Paul, as a Pharisee, would have hated these people—and would have prayed this prayer often. The the um, the facet, that fascinates me that God takes Paul, turns his life around, that causes him to not just love these people but share the gospel with them. It fascinates me that, that God did that. Uh, something else I want us to see is God saves people through the gospel, but we take the gospel to the people. We don't just sit on our on our hands. Verse 14 um, said that the Lord opened her heart, opened Lydia's heart, to pay attention to what was said by Paul. God opens her to the gospel, but what did God do earlier in Acts? He saves Paul. What did Paul do? Paul will one day share the gospel with her, and she will convert. God uses means to take the gospel to different parts of the world, and we as the church are the means that takes the gospel to the world. People are not going to find our message attractive if we're ashamed of it. People aren't going to find our message attractive if we're sitting on our hands and we're expecting uh, pastors to do everything. Pastors aren't called as the only people to share the gospel. We're all called to share the gospel. And we're called to just give, you don't have to be the most articulate person in the world. You just have to tell people what God has done in the gospel for you, what he did by his death. Um, I find this to be very true today. R.C. Sproul in a, in a book I read uh, a few years ago, he said, uh, I think the greatest weakness in the church today is that almost no one believes that God invests his power in the Bible. Everyone's looking for power in a program and a methodology and a technique in anything and everything but what God has placed it in, in, his word. He alone has the power to change lives for eternity, and that f- power is focused on the scriptures. You see the scriptures change people. You see it change Lydia. You see Paul tell them to believe in, in Jesus and be saved. And I'm sure Paul said a whole lot more than, than that. Next thing I want us to see, um, the gospel unites us even though we come from different backgrounds and needs. These three people come from a, immensely different backgrounds. If you look in verse 40, so they go out of the prison. They visited Lydia. Lydia the one that was just converted a little while ago, right? And when they'd seen the brothers, they encouraged them, and then they departed. So it looks like they go to Lydia's house, and the church in uh, the church in Philippi was actually one of the few churches where Paul didn't didn't have a uh, big criticism of them. He didn't have a criticism uh, of them as much as he did maybe Corinth or another church. Um, In Ephesians 4, Paul says these same words to us in Ephesians 4. He says, verse 2, Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you call to one hope. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. One God and Father of all, who is over all, through all, and in all. So through our... Through the gospel, through the truth of the gospel, you can take people from different backgrounds, different places, and they're all united in the gospel. Um, I, I shared this—I um, shared this with you guys. Um, I think about eight or ten months ago, but it, it just—it fits so well. Um, there's a book by a guy named A. W. Tozer. It's called The Pursuit of God, and. Uh, He's talking about unity, and he says, Has it ever occurred to you that 100 pianos all tuned to the same fork are automatically tuned to each other? They're all of one accord by being tuned, not so much to each other, but to another standard to which each one must individually bow. Think about that for a minute. That's the gospel. We bow to the gospel, and then we have unity. So 100 worshipers meet together, each one looking away to Christ. Are in heart nearer to each other than they could possibly be when they were, if they were to become unity conscious and turn their eyes away from God to strive to closer fellowship. So as we're drawing closer to God, as we keep our eyes on the gospel, we see that our unity starts to increase as well. So let me um, let me take this, and I want to I want to draw a couple of points. I want us to think about. Take this this week. Uh, think about this, and think about where you're at. So we've seen three people, one in, in very bad literal slavery, and we've seen two other people who God delivers out of their lifestyle. So what are you in slavery to? What is it that gets you going? What is it that you talk about nonstop more than anything else in life? That's that's what you love. What you talk about constantly is what you love. What you post on Facebook and Twitter, that's what you love. Is it the gospel? Or is it other things that can't deliver promises the way the gospel can? Is it your lifestyle? Is it your job? Are you are you like the jailer? Are you bored? Does Christianity bore you? Are you indifferent? There's no one, the second thing I want to show us is there's no one that's far away from the gospel. The three cast-out classes of Judaism, religious women, slaves, Gentiles; those are the three people that Paul and Silas end up dealing with in Philippi. Luke knows that they're all part of God's plan. God had something to do with each of those people. Have you ever? I know I have. I've, I've done this. Have you ever thought of somebody that's too far off from the gospel before? You're like, look, that person. You know, they're 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 too far. You know, this person's inquiring, but this guy at my job. You know, he he hates Christianity. Jesus is silly to him. Um, maybe God deals with that guy and you just don't see it on the surface. I think this text is showing us that there is no person that's too far away. What ways are you contributing to unity here at Hope? That's a big one. What ways are you contributing to it or in what ways are you hindering unity here? Um, Not all of us here have everything in common. We have Jesus in common. Our circumstances are different, families, etc. But we have the gospel in common. You have more in common with a Christian than you do an unbeliever that you have every little detail in common with because you have Christ in common. Do you love that person that's different than you? Do do you Does it contribute to unity here or does it harm unity here when you look at a person that you disagree with their, with with uh, how they approach things, how different they are? So are you hindering it or are you helping unity here? And the last one, is like Paul would have had in his former life. Are you harboring hatred towards people that God, har- God, harbored, God harbors love towards? Are there people that you uh, harbor uh, any kind of hatred towards? Are they in the building? Are they at your job? Are they people that you interact with? Are they, are they family members? Do you have a hatred or a disdain towards people that God has a love towards? I think God has a, a big way of surprising us. I don't think that Jews would have saw Acts 16 coming. I don't think that they would have seen it because they got away and they chased works and they chased being good and they looked down on people that weren't and they missed the gospel that was right in front of their eyes. They missed their they missed their uh, mandate to take the gospel of the nation. They missed that. And that's what we need to pick up. We need to pick up the fact that there are people out there that are different than us, different parts of the country, and we need to love those people the way that God loves them, the way that God loved these people here in Philippi. So with that, let's uh, let's pray and let's take communion together. Father God, thank you so much for your word, Father. I I thank you that, Father, that sometimes even though the word.